podcast listeners, this is episode 19 of the Be Contagious Leadership Experience. I appreciate you guys coming on board and jumping on the leadership train. Today we've got a great guest. He's a longtime friend of mine. I've known him ever since I was 20, 21 years old. He's the head men's coach at Wilkes University, and his name is Izzy Metz. Now, Izzy has had an amazing coaching career, uh, coaching at the high school level, going to D3, D1, and now back to D3. But he really started his journey with two volunteer jobs, one at Hobart and then one at Cornell. So you're going to love his story. He really gives a lot of great hope and a lot of nuggets on perseverance, how you could keep moving forward so you can get the coaching career and be at the place that you want to be. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Enjoy Coach Izzy Metz. Guys, thanks so much for joining us on the Be Contagious Leadership Experience. I've got a great one today. Uh, he has been a friend of mine for, wow, I think 20 years now, or almost 20 years. Um, he is the head men's coach at Wilkes University. He is the one, the only Coach Izzy Metz. How you doing, Coach? Hey, Hernando. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I appreciate it. I know we're all in the season, but you, you took time to, to join us. I really, really appreciate that. And I, t- I just want to dive in because I think for a lot of our listeners or audience, they're, they're really looking to find different nuggets on how to break into the college coaching industry. We're going to talk about what you've done with your program and the different stops you have, but kind of go through, first of all, um, trying to get into college coaching. I know that, that you... We're at Bishop Montgomery High School in Torrance, California. And then from there, kind of tell your little story. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, right around the time that you and I got to know each other when we were both coaching with the Rockfish, I was an assistant coach back in 99-2000 uh, at Bishop Montgomery in Torrance, California, and still is one of the best high school programs uh, in the country. Uh, Doug Mitchell's the coach there, and I learned a lot from him. Uh, and I kind of wanted to, to try my luck at college coaching at some point, And the opportunity came the next year to go back east to my alma mater, Hobart College in upstate New York, up in the Finger Lakes. And I was a, an assistant coach there for one year. Um, and uh, along the way, I was working camps and had a chance to meet Steve Donahue, who at the time was an assistant coach at uh, University of Pennsylvania, and then got the head coaching job at Cornell University uh, the next year, and uh, he offered me a position on his staff at Cornell. So timing worked out perfect, and uh, I was there for five years at Cornell. Um, and then I had an opportunity yeah, hold to on. go. Hold on, Coach. I want to stop you there because I think it's important for to, to really take a look at this even from a micro level. Now, you were at, at Torrance, California, Bishop Montgomery High School, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like the most – a prestigious or high-paying job you took at Hobart College. Like, what made you take that leap with the thousands of universities in the middle of the United States? That's a long way to go to Hobart, New York. Well, sure, um, and, and you're absolutely right. And you know, I'm a West Coast guy. I'm from Los Angeles, and really was enjoying being coaching with the Rockfish, big big-time AAU program, and coaching for a great coach in LA. But um, I wanted to, you know, like I said, you know, try a coaching college and give that uh, a shot. And so Hobart's my alma mater. I, I went there to small uh, liberal arts college in upstate New York, division three school, and their head coach offered me a position. So uh, I just 
took a gamble, um, you know, and said, hey, look, you know, you got to try somewhere and, and give, give it a shot. And uh, so I got in the car and, and drove 3,000 miles to, to upstate New York. And, you know, the rest was history. But, yeah, it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, enough to get a small apartment with a roommate. And the nice thing is I had medical benefits. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I was taken care of there. But, you know, learned a lot and said, hey, if it, if it works out, great. If it doesn't, at least I can say I gave it a shot. And then you went ahead and you, you go to Cornell. Now, for a lot of people who don't know this, in the Ivy League at that time, it's basically a volunteer for that assistant coaching position. Sure. Yeah, the, there's three assistant coaches in the Ivy League. Still to this day, I believe it to be true uh, that the first two assistants get paid. The third assistant does not. He's considered a volunteer. That's on both the men's and the women's side. Uh, so I was working at a health club, getting up at 5 a.m., opening up a health club in Ithaca, New York, uh, you know, taking memberships and fixing equipment and working out people as a private trainer. And then I would go into the corner basketball office around 11 a.m. or noon every day uh, and do my duties as an assistant. I was also the junior varsity head coach. We had a JV team at the time and would help out with the varsity team. So learned a ton uh, and I didn't care. I mean, I wasn't getting paid. I was making money on the side as a as a health club employee, but to me, I was, it was like I was making a million dollars a year. I was getting to coach D1 basketball and learn from a, a great coach. And so for me, it was, it was an unbelievable opportunity. Now, I know we, you know, during that time, we were both trying to figure out what this whole coaching world really, really was. And I know we had conversation at that time. I mean, you, you were, there were times where, just like a lot of us, battling with yourself on, like, should I continue? Should I not? Like, what made you keep going every single day? eventually getting a, a paid spot on Steve's staff. Sure. Um, well, I mean, I, I just think I had a goal in mind, and that was to be a college head coach. Um, you know, and for some people, uh, coaches are all different. Some want to be a Division One head coach. Some uh, want to be Division One assistants. Some want to be Division Two or Division Three head coaches. I, at the time, I didn't really put a label on what type of head coach I wanted to be. I just wanted to be a college head coach at some point. I, I got into the business because uh, I love basketball. I love competing. Uh, and I love the relationships with players. So for me, I didn't really care so much about division one, two or three. I just wanted to be a head coach, but I knew also being at the division one level was, was a great learning opportunity. And the Ivy league is such a, a, a awesome league because uh, those games are like chess matches and uh, the coaches and the players are phenomenal. So I felt like I was getting a PhD in basketball coaching in that league. Um, and then at some point, you know, if I wanted to drop back down to where, you know, I was a student in division three, maybe that opportunity would present itself. So uh, yeah, it was tough financially, but I never really let that bother me. I mean, you know, I still got to travel and go to some really neat places and just be around great people. So for me, it was a great investment. And then you went ahead and, you and, went and, ahead and of course, you were there, there for, what, five years at Cornell? Yes. And, yeah, I mean, I, I know Steve pretty well, and I, I know you learned a lot there. And then, of course, you went on and became the head – you went back to Hobart became the head men's coach there. Yes. Um, I wasn't expecting that to happen, in all honesty. Um you know, I was very happy being at Cornell. We, um, the program had turned around and got a lot better. So now we were in position after, you know, five years to compete for an Ivy League championship, which was really exciting and seeing all your hard work pay off as a staff. Uh, but as timing would have it, the Hobart position was open. Right. Uh, 
believe I was 30 years old at the time and, you know, they had interest in me and I was interested in going back to my alma mater and was fortunate enough to be offered the job. And I thought, hey, you know, here's an opportunity to be a head coach at 30 years old. And, and I jumped at it and there were no regrets. I'm glad I did it. Um, and I was there for five years and we, we had a great run there. Now, difference, you know, going, you know, you, you're at D3, go to D1 for five years, come back. Was there a huge transition? Um, you know, initially, because the Ivy League was non-scholarship and Division Three is non-scholarship, the recruiting piece in terms of getting players to commit to you and for what reasons was kind of similar. Uh, Hobart's a very good academic school. And so we were recruiting, you know, talented student athletes that were maybe not quite big enough or, you know, maybe they lacked some sort of skill set or, uh, you know, maybe a little athleticism to play at the D1 level, but they were going to be really good Division three players. And like I said, a similar type of student and, and person. So that was easy. Uh, maybe just the time commitment allowed by the NCA Division one to Division three was an adjustment. Uh, you can't work your players out in the off season, um, and uh, some of the other things that just kind of handcuff you a little bit in Division three that you don't have in D one. But you get used to that, and you learn how to maximize your time that you do have with your players in Division three. Now, now you did that. You, you you're at Hobart. You were very successful there. Then all of a sudden. Steve calls again. Is this right? And then you end up going to Boston College. Yeah. Um, he had a great run uh, when I was at Hobart and he was at Cornell. Uh, they went to the Sweet 16. They beat Wisconsin and Temple and played Kentucky. They had John Wall and Boogie Cousins and Eric Bledsoe. So, um, you know, Coach Donahue was one of the hottest coaches in the country during that run. And, uh, you know, what ended up happening was um, he, he was offered, you know, some opportunities at a higher level, and, and he took advantage of that and got the got the Boston College job. And uh, after a year of being there, there was some movement on his staff, and he offered me a position to be his director of basketball operations. And my wife and I talked about it, and obviously it was going to be a big move for us, but we thought, hey, uh, you know, the old cliche, you only live once, and what an opportunity to rejoin Coach Donahue and, you know, a couple other guys on the staff there he had relationships with and just an opportunity to coach at the highest level um, to see what that was like in, in the conference you're in right now, the ACC, going against Coach K and Roy Williams and all the big name programs that I grew up watching. I mean, I, I thought it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And as much as I loved Hobart, I felt like I would have regretted not pursuing that opportunity. And I'm glad I did it. I mean, that that just experience alone in terms of just, you know, growing up in L.A. and then all of a sudden, years later, 35, 36 years later, you find yourself coaching in Cameron or the Dean Smith Center, playing against teams that you saw yourself. Like, how, how was that internally when when you're – I know they're just games or games, but there's got to be something inside that was like, wow, this is – I can't believe I'm coaching in this game. Oh, no question. I mean, and I'd be lying to you, especially that first year I was at BC when uh, we were in the Dean Dome and, you know, it's about five minutes before tip time. And I walk out onto the court with Coach Donahue and he's being escorted by a couple uh, security guards and police officers. And, you know, you're looking at the crowd. There's 20, you know, 2000 people in the stands. The arena's rocking. And, you know, there's Roy Williams, you know, shaking your hand, you know, saying, hey, good luck. Have a good game. You know, I mean, right there, I kind of pinched myself going, wow, here it is. This is the big time. Um, and so, yeah, especially that first year, I mean, just, 
you know, experiencing that. But quickly you learn, like, if you're going to be good and, and you're going to be competitive, you got to get over that in a hurry because those guys are trying to beat you and you're, you're trying to you're trying to win. And it's it's a competitive cutthroat uh, occupation. So, um, you know, that starstruck mentality has got to got to go pretty quickly. And, and it's more about, you know, between the lines competing. So um, but yeah, I mean, that was a pretty surreal feeling, especially that first year. Wow. Now, after you know, after Boston College, obviously, I think the, the the whole staff was let go. Talk about how that feeling was. Uh, I know, being a coach, I've been fired six, seven times, um, let go. You know, I, I I I could I could relate. But there's a lot of people who who you know, there's that joke in coaching where you know you get hired to eventually get fired. Like, how was that? I know you had a fit. You have you have you have a family, and at that time, what was going through your mind then? Sure. Well, when we left Hobart to go to Boston College, my wife and I talked about it. Hey, the reality, unfortunately, is that um, if it doesn't work out, if we don't win enough, we could be fired. So we kind of went into that knowing it with uh, open open mind and, and just being aware of the situation. But, um, you know, while while you're going through each season, you don't really think about it too much because you stay focused on, you know, what do we have to do to get the program better and, and to win? But when, unfortunately, the day came that Coach Donahue was let go, and basically, as we know, the staff gets let go. Uh, you know, very rarely does an assistant coach get to uh, stay on with the new coach. I quickly shifted. I mean, because at the time, I had two young children and a wife. So you go into survival mode of, all right, what's going to be the next opportunity, and how do we go about uh, you know, getting that? Uh, and I knew I wanted to get back to being a head coach, I just really missed, you know, as much as I learned being an assistant at BC and loved working for Coach Donahue, I wanted to get back to being a head coach. And Wilkes University, uh, the position here was open. I knew something about the position through a few different people. Uh, we had a great coach that was here before me who had just retired. So I learned more about the position and, and went after it and just kind of was very focused on that. I uh, was fortunate enough to get this job. Wow, and then so you, you're getting there. You, you've learned a lot over, you know, being at Hobart, being at Boston College, being at Cornell. How has that shaped the culture that you are instilling over there at Wilkes? Well, uh, my mentor in coaching, first and foremost, is Steve Donahue. Um, I owe most, if not all, my career to him um, because if it weren't for my opportunity at Cornell, uh, him bringing me to Boston College, I probably wouldn't be here at Wilkes. I wouldn't have learned nearly as much about the coaching profession, uh, the X's and O's of basketball, to, and then more importantly, how you, how you treat people and how you treat your staff. I think, he, you know, as a head coach now, just the way he treated me as his assistant and the rest of us on staff uh, showed me how you treat your staff. And he was a great guy to work for. Uh, he let you work. Uh, you know, recruit and taught you how to, you know, be a really good on, on the floor coach and, and all that. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, through people, you learn how to do something. And, and with Coach Donahue, that's that's what I learned was how you treat people, how you prepare as a professional. Um, so he prepared me, you know, along the way to for my first head coaching job at Hobart and then going back to work for him was invaluable. Uh, just seeing how he handled the pressure coaching at the highest level and still never wavered from his principles and core beliefs and maintained his character as a person. Uh, and that's really helped me here at Wilkes. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, I think the guys that work with me here feel the same way. 
That's awesome. I mean, you know, anytime you're able to go ahead and grab from different people, obviously from Steve, who's been in a lot of different places and see how to, you know, how to do things. What, you know, what are things that you're instilling leadership-wise to, to your players? And we say it all the time, you know, a lot of times coaches always tell their players to be leaders, except for the fact that our players have never been taught to be leaders. So what are some things that, that you have been trying to instill with your group of young men as, as you build your program? Sure. Well, I mean, like a lot of programs, you know, we have some core values that we put up in the locker room. We talk about, um, you know, and we try to, you know, live those every day uh, on and off the court. Um, so it's, it's just talking with our players daily about what's important. Uh, we try to simplify things. I mean, we don't have uh, rules in our program. You know, I've heard Coach K talk about this. I mean, standards, we have standards within our program. We have 10 standards that we try to live by um and just kind of you know if, if say we lose a couple games or we have a bad practice or there's some stuff going on we always try to come back to what our core values are and and, and you know what our standards are and try to live by those uh and we talk about it that coach-led programs typically are mediocre but player-led programs are always the best ones and so uh you know you try to educate your your players about that and just kind of tell them why that's important and show them why that's important. And I've, and I've found out typically as a head coach and an assistant, the older your team gets, the more junior and senior leadership you have, typically the better your team is, especially at this division three level where you do get to coach guys for four years. You see the, the difference in development, um, you know, between a freshman and senior, just how, how much more mature and how a senior handles adversity compared to when they were freshmen it's a night and day difference, and uh, I think we're starting to see it with our program now uh, that we, we handle adversity much better. That's awesome. I, you know, I think that uh, when we go through, you know, I know in our terms when it comes to recruiting, it's, it's hard to gauge how players get through adversity. It is tough to see when they can get tougher. I know we're always trying to find tougher players and players who play with grit and dive on the floor, but a lot of times um, – I think it's hard to, to really gauge and, and really see it. And I think everything you're saying really helps your players. And I know my players, I'm going to use some of the things you just said, to go and help, you know, in terms of them getting better and better and better. Now, what are some things that you could tell a lot of young coaches out there? How do they take a chance on their career? Um, I think for people like you and I, it's, it's real easy. We just, we just did it, right? There was no kind of thought process. Yeah, there was some doubt a little, but we just jumped in. What are some things you give advice to, to coaches who are trying to break in on the men or women's side and just trying to take a chance on themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I think, Hernando, the, the coaching profession probably has changed a little bit or a lot since you and I got into this uh, 20 years ago, let's say. Um, but I, I still think you have to believe in yourself first and foremost and, and kind of set a goal and like, what do you want to achieve? Like, why are you getting into coaching and, and what do you want to achieve with coaching? And first kind of find that about yourself. And then once you know what you want, now you kind of have to have that roadmap to go about it, but also understanding that there's not one way to advance in, in the coaching profession. And a lot of it is luck, uh, right place, right time. It's such a people business. So the bigger your network of people is and how well connected you are through genuine relationships, not those surface relationships where 
you know, it's just text messaging or, you know, hey, you see somebody at the final four or on the road recruiting, but real relationships that, you know, you're a valuable member of their inner circle or vice versa. I think that's going to help you. Um, and then just, I, I always say the best job is the one you currently have. So whether that's that part-time assistant, that graduate manager job, that, you know, assistant coaching job, or you're at a D3 school, whatever, you know, wherever you're at, that's got to be the best job. And if it is, people notice because then you're taking that seriously. You're, you're doing a great job in recruiting, building relationships with your players, administrators, staff members, and people are going to take notice of that. And most importantly, your program is going to improve. You're going to improve it as an assistant or a head coach so that, you know, if a young coach wanted to advance, their next opportunity is going to come about that much better uh, because of the situation they were in before, just, you know, continue to improve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you are in your career, you are the epitome of loyalty, you know, and, and how important, how strong is that word in not just the world of coaching, just life in general? Well, yeah. I mean, um, to me, that's everything, you know, and, and uh, like I said, that's why I don't have a huge circle of people. You know, I've got some very good friends in coaching that will always be my friends, but I'm not one of these people that's, you know, going to have a hundred coaching contacts that I all consider my good friends because I know that's probably not genuine, but I'm loyal to uh, a certain group of people that have, you know, always had my back and my best interest and I've always hoped to be there for them. Um, So yeah, I think loyalty in life is a, is a huge thing, you know, and I, I think, you know, if you're working hard for people and, and you know, in and, and life and friendships and those type of things, it's going to come back to you when you don't expect it. And I think that's that's what it should be. I mean, I never expect anything from any of my friends or other coaches. I know I try to do right by them and, you know, hopefully they, they try to do right by others. And I think that's the, the way it should work. Yeah, oh, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, but Izzy, I got two more questions for you, man, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on. First, final question is this. When they make the Izzy Mets movie, who is playing Coach Mets? Well, uh, as you can see, it's probably got to be somebody with no hair. So, um, you know, I don't know. Woody Harrelson, right? He shaves his head now. So maybe it's Woody Harrelson. That's a good one anyway because he was in White Man Can't Jump. So it's a nat- natural segue right there. <laughs> I love it. I can definitely see Woody Harrelson. And that would be it. Now, last question. Um you know, we, we always talk about on the Be Contagious Leadership Experience that you've got to be in love with something that has allowed you to move forward and take leadership and ownership of your life. What are you in love with? My family. And I know that sounds uh, kind of corny, probably, but, um, you know, I, I think I'm really fortunate to have two healthy children uh, and a wife who's very supportive and allows me to coach every day because that's not an easy thing uh, to do, to be away from your family when recruiting and practice and those type of things, but just a very supportive family um, that comes to games, is there when you lose, uh, you know, my kids are young enough that they're in my bed in the morning when I when I wake up. And so, you know, wherever you're at or whatever situation comes your way in life, to have a really supportive family has been awesome. And uh, I'm so uh, grateful for that. That's awesome, man. Well, Coach, I appreciate it, man. We've been friends for a heck of a long time. I, 
I know that we, we talk about our careers and, and we don't get a chance to catch up very often, really through text messages, group text messages that, which are pretty funny. You know, it, it really, uh, I've always admired how you've gone through your career, the, the different steps you've taken, the sacrifice you've made, but also the, the stubbornness that is needed to go ahead and move forward and get to where you want to be. I admire you greatly, man. I appreciate you coming on and good luck the rest of the year. Thanks for having me, Coach. Talk right. to you soon. You got it. What a great episode with Izzy Metz. He also has one of the best names in college basketball, hands down. If you're really looking for someone, a mentor, to go ahead and, and really reach out to, I strongly encourage you to reach out to Izzy. Uh, Izzy's story, as, as you can hear, he's been everywhere. He has faced every challenge, and now he is in control of his own program, and uh, he gets to be as great as he wants to be. And I know his championship mindset, he definitely wants to take Wilkes to another level. Guys, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the BCLE. Do me a favor. Please go to iTunes. Give us a rating. It could be one. It could be five. It could be ten. It doesn't matter. Just go out there. Share this episode. Share the love because we're trying to do things in life. Remember, you are not alone. You are doing a lot of great things in your life, but we all need help. So don't forget that you are contagious and you have the power to help change someone's life. Till next time, guys, we'll talk soon.